you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seats near you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there should be a table of contents in the front, and 1 Peter is toward the end of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible or are interested, kind of just here investigating Christianity, there's a book uh, shelf out in the foyer that has Christian resources and Bibles back there. Please pick up anything that is of interest to you. Um, Typically, um, we go through books of the Bible here, teaching verse by verse, but uh, this year we've taken a couple times during the year where we're focusing on one of the spiritual practices that we saw that was evident in Jesus' life, talking about the reality. Sometimes we want the life of Jesus, but we don't really live the lifestyle of Jesus. So what were those things that were significant in Jesus' life that kept him connected to the Father? So in January, we looked at the practice of prayer and what that means, and we've been looking the past few weeks at this practice of community, that God has called us into community. And you see this balance in Jesus' life where he would go off to the, the desert place or to a lonely place, and he would connect with his Father, but then he would then reintegrate back into this world and hang out with his disciples and oftentimes we kind of whitewash the disciples but you look at the disciples these guys were were characters right they were people very much still in process right we've got a tax collector who would have been one of the most treasonous people in Israel and everybody hated him he was getting rich off of charging extra taxes on his own people and then also you've got Simon the zealot We would call him a terrorist right now. They would carry around this little knife on their thigh called a Sakari. And when they had the opportunity and they saw a Roman who was unaccompanied, they would just give him a little dig in the side. So he was a guy that was willing to die and kill other people in the cause of freeing Israel. And God brings these two people together. And then where we have James and John, they're called the sons of thunder. I think they would have been in a biker gang, and we can kind of see their attitude where where Jesus goes through Samaria, and one of the towns doesn't really accept him, and and James and John are like, Jesus, you want us to call down fire on these people? Let's torch this whole place. Women, children, the whole place, let's just burn it up. So there's obviously still some racist attitudes even in the followers of Jesus at that time. And it's to these people that Jesus constantly went and interacted and sought to bring the life of God and the values of the kingdom to them. And so we're going to continue our series in talking about what is this community of believers supposed to look like. And we've been looking at the, the analogies or the metaphors that are used in the New Testament of this community of believers. And we started out looking at that metaphor of family and kind of Jesus radically redefining in a culture where family was everything, biological family was everything. And Jesus was asked, you know, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside And he said, "Ah, I'm not going to go out there. Who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? It's those that are doing the will of my father. So he says, basically, for Christian community, there's a bond that's even stronger than biological blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that ties us all together. So we are called as a family to be fully engaged with one another and concerned for one another. And then we looked at that analogy or metaphor of the body and that whole idea there is that we are meant to be interdependent. 
We live in a super individualistic culture, and we've talked about that. Of all studies, America is probably on the top of individualism, right? That, that we excel in that. And, and there's some good aspects of that, but there's a downside to that as well, especially as it applies to coming together as the community of God's followers that we're called to be interdependent. Like India struggled even to ask for help, and it's like, oh, I don't want to ask for I, I want to do this on my own, right? I, I can do this. And God said, no, that's not how I've designed you guys. And when he sent out his disciples, he sent them out by twos, right? That there's, no, it's not a bunch of lone rangers going out there. It's like you need, even in going out and doing missions work, you need to be part of a community in doing that. And we recognized as well is that all of us need to be involved in this body, There's no part that's unimportant. All of us have a role to play. So this involvement is what we need in the church and in the community of believers today. And that's one of those things, again, that we have a very kind of consumer mentality of church, right? We come to church, we we get a little bit, did this please me, did I like it? Not coming with the idea of how can I build up, how can I encourage, how how can I help other people here? And so that that whole concept of us being a body And then last week we looked at the fact that we are called to be the temple of God and priests. That place where where God manifests his presence in this world where people get a taste of this is the God of the universe that's, that's come to this earth. The temple was the place where God came down in his glory when the priests, they, they kind of distributed the truth to the people but also brought the people before the Lord and that's our calling as well that we should be the people that people look at and say that's kind of what God is like. And we're to be the people that go to God with friends and those that don't know Christ and our brothers and sisters and say, Lord, help this person out. Open their eyes to the truth and the reality of who you are. And that's our calling as priests. And this morning I want to look at another metaphor that God calls the community of believers a holy nation. God's desire for our community is that we become a distinct culture. The word nation is ethnos here, right? It's a, it's a people group. It's, it's a culture. Um, I remember when I was in elementary school, my dad worked in New York City, and we'd go into New York, and one of the things I loved about New York is you could go to different areas. We would go to this little Chinese restaurant. It was about as wide as five chairs here called Bobo's. They had the world's best egg rolls. I've never tasted anything as good as those. But then you can leave Chinatown and you drive just a short distance and you're in Little Italy. And there you can get some of the best cannoli that you have ever tasted in your, in your life, right? You can see the theme of food in my childhood, right? That, that, but this idea that there are these distinct ethnic groups or cultures and you go from place to place and there's huge distinctions there. And God is calling us to be a holy culture, a holy ethnos, a people that are distinct and unique. And we often think kind of of churches as almost joining a club, right? I don't think that is what a culture is. A culture is much bigger than that, right? And if you get into any hobby, you realize there's kind of a subculture with that, that hobby, right? 
Um, Paul will relate to this in guitars and, and tube amps. There's a whole subculture that's just what kind of tubes do you put in your tube amps? And oh, the Russian tubes are the best, or no, they're not as good. You have to have this tube from 1959, and that is going to give you the. And there's a whole culture that subculture that revolves around that. But still, within that subculture, they're still probably consider themselves to be Americans if they're living here. But an ethnos, a culture, is bigger than that. It's kind of a whole group of people speaking the same language and, and there's commonalities about what we think about, how we should relate between the sexes and, and how we should look at vocation and, and family and handling our resources and how much we should be tied together to one another. So there's all these things that bind us together in a culture and that's what God is saying. That's what I want the church to be like a culture that speaks the same language, that's moving in the same direction, that has the same ultimate values. God is calling us to view ourselves not in simply the ethnic terms of where I've been raised and born, but this is a new ethnos that I'm becoming part of. And my wife can relate to this more than others. She's from Germany and she has moved into a new ethnos here. And there's certain things that we do that just at first just made no sense to her at all. And there's just an awareness of, okay, we do things differently than you do there. And it's not that ours is right and yours is wrong, but there's just a huge difference sometimes in, in how we even look at life and what's important take vocation in Germany. They think we're crazy over here because they start with like six weeks of vacation. They say, Americans, why are you working all the time? Don't you enjoy some of life? And they spend much more time around the table just enjoying one another's company. And friendship is a higher value there. They're not quite as individualistic as we are. And it's all those things that are different. And, and you look at that and you say, that's a cultural perspective. And God is saying, you know what? I want you all to be a new culture a new ethnic. And that can be a challenge, right? I don't know how many of you are Olympics fans, but watching the Olympics, and, and each country has their distinctives, and there's, there's a national pride that comes there. And as we gather as a people, I know there's people here from Zimbabwe, from Jamaica, from Omaha, Nebraska, right? <laughs> Yankees, they're Southerner, you know, from all over the place. And it's like, God's like, yes, I'm calling all of you people from Egypt as well to come together and I want you to be a new culture. I want you to think differently about just almost everything in life. That's what God is calling us to be. In essence, turn in our passports and say, no, this is the culture. I'm part of the kingdom of God right now. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God and that trumps my allegiance everywhere else. And I've seen increasingly how politics and Christianity don't mix very well and we separate and segregate over political views and what this text tells me, you know, there should be a culture that supersedes all of that, that's more important than all of that, that I should be able to sit down with people of any political persuasion and say, why do you support this person? Can we have a dialogue about this? Can we talk about this? But in our culture today, that just creates rancor and animosity and hatred, and folks, that is just not right for the body of Christ. So when we come to Christ, we're not joining a club. 
We're not saying, you know, I, I'm an hour and a half on Sunday morning. That's, that, you know, that's not much. I can do that. No, it's, this is supposed to be an entire new cultural view of how you look at the world. People often talk about the term worldview. That's what a culture is. It's a worldview. It's a way of looking at the world that's radically different than the culture, whatever culture we come from. Jesus, when he's looking at the Pharisees and what they value, and he says, you know, what's highly exalted among men is often detestable in the sight of God. And I think we need to recognize that and look at the cultures that we come from and say, okay, how does this compare to the culture that Christ wants to build? He calls us a holy nation or a holy culture. What does holy mean? Holy means just set apart for the Lord's purpose and service. The instruments in the temple were called holy. Why? Because they were set apart for the service of the Lord. And so he's calling us as a people, as his community, to be set apart for his purpose and his plan. To take our values from what he values, right? to base our law on the law of Christ or the law of love, that we're to love God with all we've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And again, as you look at the world and what they value, it's so often about 180 degrees opposite of the kind of culture that God wants us to be forming in the church. The whole issue of power and position and getting in those positions. Why do people in the world want those positions? So they can be the top dog, right? So she can tell somebody else, jump, and that person says, how high, what can I do? How can that other people that serve me make my life better? In terms of material resources, in terms of making my life more comfortable and easier, right? And this kind of thinking was true in Jesus' day as well, even among the disciples. Jesus It's remarkable. Several times he tells his disciples, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. All right? And then right after that, James and John are sending mom in to say, okay, who who gets the top positions in your kingdom? And it's like, how tone deaf can you be? He just said he was going to die for you. And you are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then the other disciples find out and they're not like, oh, that was a bad mistake. They're They're really ticked off. It's like, no, we want those positions. And so the reality is Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not how I want you to act in the culture of my kingdom. If you want to be great, you know what you're going to be? You're going to be the servant of the people that below are above you. No, you're going to be the servant of all. And we read that and it's like, oh yeah, that's that's fine. But someone has told me, and this is very true, the true test of servanthood is when people treat you like one. And you're like, wow, I need some recognition here. Do you, do you see what I did? And if I want to be a servant leader, I want to get commendation for being a servant leader, right? And, and that's become a buzzword in the church. And it's like, okay, that is a noble quality, but it, it's like, am I acting like that even if nobody recognizes my service? Jesus says, that's what I want it to be like in the culture of my kingdom that I'm calling you to. Or where do we get our identity from? What does our culture say right now? It's absolutely all of that is internal, right? There's no truth out there. There's no transcendence out there. So you just have to make up your identity with what you feel on the inside, right? And it's all about what I feel. 
So if I feel this way, then that's who I am. And if I feel that way, then that's what I am. And even if what I feel is totally different from what reality is, I need to accept that in the other person and say, that's, that's, that's who you, you are. And so often we seek to get our identity from the culture applauding us and saying, man, that's, that's great. How many thumbs up did that give you on your Instagram? And how many followers do you have? And, and that's all good. You know, but the problem with that, it's, it's like it's super draining and super demanding. Because what if you say something that all of a sudden other people don't like and then all of a sudden your identity is being threatened because they don't like you? anymore. So there's this constant push. I've got to keep ahead of this. I've got to respond in this way so that I'm liked, so that I'm loved. And, and I think we're all built with this inner desire to be loved, to be valued, to be significant. And if we're looking at the culture to provide that or just something internal, we recognize, man, I see my own self. I don't think I'm that valuable. So I've got to put on this face and I'm going to post only things that make it look like, you know, I'm living the life all the time, never been sad, never been lonely, never struggled with anything ever in my life. And this is me. And it's like, no, that's not really who I am, but that's not the image I can present. So you're living in this terrible pressure of trying to be something that you're not and to keep up a face. And God says your identity is found in your being created in the image of God. I don't care what you look like externally. I don't care how much you weigh, how skinny you are. I don't care what your face looks like, what your nose looks like. I don't care even what you've been into in the past. You're valuable because I have created you in my image. And then even more as believers, we recognize that Christ has come and he's hung on a cross to say, you know how valuable you are to me? I was willing to go through this for the joy set before me. And what is that joy to be in relationship with you? That's how much you're valued. That's where your identity comes from. And there's such a peace in that. So I don't have to keep fighting to be up there and to be recognized. I can just rest in who God has called me. I'm his child. I'm loved. He delights in me. And even if nobody else does, you know what? That's okay. Because I know he does. And let's take the value of sexuality in our culture, which is probably the top value today. What does our culture say about sex? Sex is for pleasure, and the only boundary is consent, right? And so anything goes in that area, and fulfilling this area of your life is probably the primary thing. What does scripture say about sexuality? Sexuality, it's a beautiful thing. It was created by God. He designed human bodies with pleasure receptors. All that thing is his design, right? But he's designed it for a purpose and that purpose we see in the New Testament is to reflect his love for the church. We're the bride of Christ. And in this amazing coming together, there's this union that happens that there's still very huge distinctions between Christ and his church, but we're brought together and we're one. And we don't lose our distinctiveness, but we're joined with Christ. And that's what the picture of is sex. It's a beautiful, it's a sacred thing, but it's meant to be within the bounds of marriage because that communicates the commitment that sex is designed to have. 
And I recognize in our culture, almost all of us are fallen in this area. We've all been broken in this area. And God wants you to know that there's forgiveness and grace there. I've experienced this in my life, but I've been married to the same woman for 32 years, and it's a beautiful thing. And so the church is supposed to be distinct in this area and to look around at the world who are just pursuing the next hookup after the next hookup when they finally get to the end of that and they realize, you know what, a sexual high is ultimately not going to satisfy me, it's not giving me life, then we're the ones that say, you know what, yeah, that's true. It's designed for a higher purpose, this than physical pleasure, that's part of it, but there's a much bigger picture of that. And let me tell you about the love of Jesus. And we need to operate with grace in that area in our culture and to say, you know what, I'm broken too, but let me show you what Jesus has done. And so we take our cues from what the Lord has said about these values. And there's probably every value that we can think of to start thinking through, okay, what kind of a culture is God calling us to be as a church? We're called to be a holy or a distinct culture. My question is, are we being that? And I struggle with this because when I was first came to Christ back in the 80s, it was like, okay, the churches that were falling off the radar and all sorts of problems, they were the ones that were, I would say, out on the lunatic fringe, right? But then recently I've been looking and seeing so many leaders that I would say, man, this person is, is solid. They, they're really solid. You should listen to them. And then I hear, their life has just imploded. And to recognize, man, we are all broken. We can't just point the finger. It's those crazy people out there. No, it's, it's us here. And to recognize that this holiness and becoming a holy culture is, is not something instantaneous, right? To me, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Hebrews 10, 14. By one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And in that verse, it lets us know that how am I made right with God? It's by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By that sacrifice, I've made perfect forever. It's a done deal, right? God has accepted me. I'm his child. All my junk of the past has been forgiven. It's been tossed into the sea. It's been taken away as far as the east is from the west. That is true of me. Theologians call that positional sanctification. I am made right with God. But you know what? I'm also in the process of being made holy. I haven't arrived there yet. Becoming a Christ-like culture is going to take time. And it's not going to be easy because we all come with cultural baggage to become this new culture. I talked about racism one time and Errol was like, I said something like, there's no place for racism in the church. And he's like, yeah, there is. It shouldn't be there but recognizing it probably is there and because we are people in process, we need to work on that, not to ignore it, but to sit down with our brothers and sisters from Jamaica. And by the way, congratulations on three golds in the 100 meter for, <laughs> for women yesterday, sweeping that. But the reality is, I'm not gonna know what it's like to be a black man 
unless I sit down with one and talk and say, you know, how has this impacted you? Or if you're from Zimbabwe or wherever, there's going to be a different position and point of view. And if I don't sit down and I don't dialogue with my brothers and sisters about this stuff, it's not going to change the culture we're in. And when we do that, there will be misunderstanding. There probably will be things that we say the other person gets really triggered by and say, what in the... And somehow we've got to push through that and we've got like love to think the best of the other person and not say, okay, they're out to nail me, but they just don't get it yet. And to be really gracious with one another as we deal with these issues together as a body in dialogue with one another, coming from different cultural backgrounds into this new culture and say, what is this to look like in the community of Christ? So we're called as God's people, to be a distinct culture, to be holy, to be separated unto the Lord for his purpose and his service. And he says, that's what we are. We are a holy nation. He says, you're not becoming, but the reality is, the scriptures often say, okay, this is what's true of you, now begin to live into it. This is the reality, you're a holy nation, now begin to live like you are a holy nation. And that's that tension that you find throughout Scripture that God has called us. We are, in one sense, already sanctified. Scripture uses the past tense there, made holy. But it also uses the few, we are being made sanctified and we will be fully sanctified when we're in the presence of God. So we're in this process right now. And so I can have assurance, you know what? I'm accepted by Christ through what he did on the cross. I'm made perfect forever. But I'm still in process. And because I'm accepted, I can live out that reality with honesty with other people. And saying, you know what, I'm not quite there yet in this area. Man, I'm really struggling with sexual purity in my life. Or man, I'm really struggling with anxiety and fear in my life. Or man, I'm really struggling with not putting too much emphasis on the material stuff of life. Or I'm really struggling with wanting so much to be accepted by those around me that I will just kind of become a Christian chameleon in that context and just let it slide and not say anything about Jesus because I know that may raise some eyebrows if I'm there. But we need to be a place where that can happen and we can say, how can I help you get to that place where you live less in fear, where you're less addicted to porn, where you're moving forward towards Christ-likeness and developing a culture that is like that. So how do we develop this distinct Christian culture? I think you see this here in Peter. He says, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the first thing that I see, he's calling us a holy nation. How do we get there? First is we need to be really secure in our identity in Christ, that we are loved and part of God's family. 
And Peter here uses almost the exact same words that we looked at back in Exodus 19. If you look, there's a translation from the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek about 100 or 200 years before Christ. And we looked at this passage when we were going through Exodus. And starting in verse 4 of chapter 19, you don't have to turn there, just listen. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I rescued you people out of your slavery to a culture that you were in bondage to. It says, now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. And it's the same word here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Peter uses. You're his chosen, you're his people and his treasured possession. You're his possession. He's he's valued you. He's called you. And we looked at that Hebrew word, you're his segula. This is something that's really valuable and really important in the New Testament word. It says it's something that took a whole lot of effort to acquire. And he says, that's who you are in God's sight. You're a treasured possession of God. And he says also, you're a chosen people. Now, some people get all bent out of shape. It's like, whoa, you think you're better than us? And that's how choosing works in the world, right? And I just remember elementary school and pickup games in the playground. Usually the two best people were picked to be captains of the team, and then they would choose people, Right? And you never wanted to be the last dude that was chosen because that felt awful, right? So you're being chosen and it means, man, I'm really special. I've got gifts and skills and I can just take it downtown over my friends in basketball. So I'm going to be either the captain that's doing the choosing or I'm going to be one of the first that's chosen. But as we read through Exodus, the Lord said, "Eh, I didn't choose you Israelites because you're so wonderful. In fact, you're not. (laughs) You're among the the least of the nations in the world. And you know what? You're really stubborn. You're really stiff-necked. And if you need any evidence of that, just read through any section of the Old Testament and you'll see that reality, right? I think God has special desire to work with the hard cases. That's one of the reasons that I'm here. He likes like, oh, this guy, this is going to be a lot of work, but that's a challenge that I'm up for, and he's God, and he, and he can handle that, right? So being a chosen people does not mean, hey, we're special, we're better than everybody else. In fact, it may mean, wow, these people actually, on the scale of natural goodness, they may fall below kind of the mean line there. And that's when you look around and you can see, and people sometimes say, wow, man, I know non-Christians that are a whole lot nicer than Christians. It's like, yeah. But the question is, what would that Christian have been like without Christ in their life? (laughs) Right? So it's not where you are, but it's where you begin and how far God moves you. And so to be chosen by God is not a mark of I'm better than everybody else. It's not like the meat USDA choice. You've made it through all these inspections and you're better than the other. No. It's your chosen why? Because of his love. Not because of anything in you, but simply because he's a God of love and he has chosen to shower his grace on your life to open up your eyes to the truth and reality that you are deeply loved by the God of this universe and he wants a relationship with you. And we're not going to live like a holy or distinct culture unless we really understand, you know what, I am significant, I am valuable, I am loved by God. 
because the way that God is calling us to go in almost every culture is going to be countercultural. He's going to offend the self-righteous and uptight, and he's going to offend those that are like, I can do whatever I want and be my own God and live outside the boundaries. Both of those he will offend. He said, I want you to be my holy nation. And so we need to have a deep, deep understanding of how much we're loved by God. And it's not because we're all that lovable, but it's because he is a God that loves and has chosen to shower his love on us. And then I think another thing that I see here, if we're going to live like a holy nation, that we need to develop a kind of a temporary resident perspective on living life here. To recognize, he says here, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What is he saying there? What's the metaphor of exile? What does that communicate to somebody? It's like, oh, I remember that. The Jews were exiled because they were disobedient and they were taken to Babylon and they weren't in their home country at that point in time. And a sojourner is someone that's just moving through and saying, you know what, this world is not my home. Read through Hebrews 11. All these people are looking forward to a city in the future whose architect and builder is God and recognizing, you know what, this planet that we're on right now Though there's some beautiful aspects of it, it's still very broken. And you don't have to turn on the news for very long to see that brokenness, right? And it bleeds over into our lives. And if we're expecting this to be heaven on earth, we're going to get really discouraged really quickly. But to recognize that God calls us as his ambassadors in this world to live as sojourners and exiles. That this world isn't my home ultimately. And again, to develop that mindset and to develop that idea that, you know what, I don't have to get everything right now. I don't have to have it all because there's coming a time when God will bless me beyond my imagination. And I don't know what that's like, and it's, folks, it's not just pie in the sky by and by, but it's been a very real hope of Christians throughout the ages until we get kind of to our time. And now it seems like, man, It's my best life now. I want it now. I don't care about, I want it now. And if life is difficult now, and if there's suffering involved now, then I'm kind of out with this Christianity stuff. Just talking to Tim about a guy that came to Christ in a very oppressive culture, and he said, I I think this is going to mean I suffer greatly for being associated with Jesus. But you know what? I count that an honor. And I said, how far is that from my thinking, and from the thinking of so many here in the West, that's like, if I'm suffering, then that must mean God is not around in my life. It's like, no, if you are suffering, it may be because you're living a kingdom ethic and living out a countercultural ethic that's so different than the culture that they do not like it. What did Jesus say? If they hated me, they're probably going to hate you. And again, we can be hated because we're obnoxious, and that's not a good thing. But we can also be hated just even if we're being gentle and respectful and just standing on the truth of God's word. And that's, you know, Jesus count it a blessing in that circumstance if you're persecuted for my sake. So to do that, we need to recognize, hey, we're just passing through here. I think we also, to do this, we need to be saturated by the word of God. 
to take our ethics from the word and not from the culture. And just as the reality, we're constantly bombarded with the messages of the culture. And usually those messages don't primarily come first through the laws of the culture. They come first usually through the entertainment of the culture, right? And it's just, you know, I forget who said it, but he said, give me the poets of a culture and I don't care who writes the laws. What the person was saying is, give me the songwriters, the entertainers, the movie producers, and I don't care what laws are on the book, that is what's going to inform the thinking of the culture. And you see that in the whole area of sexuality and what has happened there. There's now a show in Britain on called Trigonometry that's all about polyamorous relationships and how wonderful that is. And it's just like, okay, that's how the culture works. Like, it first becomes acceptable there. It's really cool. The best people are those people that are living like this. They're the funniest. They're the neatest. And then it's just, okay, that's the ethic that I begin to live with. And it's like, okay, there's got to be a, an ethic that we derive from the Word of God that is our center, not from what the culture is producing. And then we really, really need to be Holy Spirit dependent in this. The truth is not enough. We need to depend on that Holy Spirit. Yet not I, but through Christ in me is what we sung. And those need to be more than mere words. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him, his Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence in your life to empower you to live in a countercultural way. That's the reality. We don't have the ability on our own just to kind of gut it out. Or we can, it's like, I'm just going to do this for a little while. I'm going to be completely pure. And, and it works for a little while until you fall flat on your face. And it's like, Holy Spirit, change me because I don't have the power to change myself. So how do we interact with the culture around us? I see two temptations today. And the first is avoidance of culture. We just pull back, right? We move back kind of into our Christian bunker. We only associate with other Christians, people that think like us, believe like us, and we stay far away from those bad, bad people out in the culture. And I'm seeing this more and more as people separate. It's like they see the world getting more hostile to a biblical Christianity and they're like, oh, I've got to get away from that. And then the other temptation is assimilation. Oh, I'm just going to go with the flow, man. It's just too hard to kind of constantly be swimming against the stream to be seeking to live my life in a way that's consistent with the word of God. So I'm just going to go with the flow. We're all accepted by grace and, and that's Cool. I think there's a, another way that God is calling us. And Jesus said, you're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? And that's the challenge for us as believers. That we need to both recognize that in the culture that we live in, there is the common grace of God. And there's beautiful things in the culture. There's beautiful music, beautiful art, beautiful movies sometimes. It's not all horrible. God's common grace has reached out to us all. And I think we need more Christians that are willing to be good Christian musicians and artists and movie producers and people like that to recognize the power of that medium in our culture. To not say, oh, that's horrible, but to seek to make a difference and to do excellent work in those areas, to open a door 
for God to be at work. But we also need to recognize the fallenness of culture. And this is a challenging balance to walk out, right? There's a book that I'm reading. It's a pretty dense academic kind of book. It's uh, Christ and Culture Revisited. There was a guy, Niebuhr, that wrote kind of the various ways that Christians interact with culture. And this is a guy named Don Carson that wrote this and said, basically, Niebuhr's like Christ against culture, Christ in culture, Christ over culture, Christ transforming culture. And his point is basically, all of those are too simplistic. You can't look at one model. Because in one place, I'm able to celebrate what the culture is doing because of the common grace of God working here and there. But other places, I have to say, no. I have to push back against culture. This is what someone has said here. He's quoting, and I can't remember who, but he talks about avoiding these extremes, either assimilation or being totally against culture. We must see Christ against and for, agnostic, or antagonistic and affirming, arguing and embracing. This is complex, but then Christianity is no stranger to complexity. That we need one another to work through these kind of things. I don't know what unique temptations a musician faces in this world. So I need to sit down with someone like Paul or someone like say, okay, how do we integrate the lordship of Christ in this area in your life? Wonderful. That's a beautiful thing and we need to do that and to recognize we're probably not all going to come out on the same place in some of these things. And to recognize we're called to different arenas in which we're to operate. Let's take the abortion issue. I believe this life begins at conception and life is sacred and, and should be fought for, right? But then there's different values in terms of how does that work it out. Anna Higgins is a lawyer and she said, okay, the, the way that that's going to look in my life is I'm going to fight for righteous legislation in this area. Other people may say, you know what, the way I do is to volunteer at Safe Harbor and to counsel these women that find themselves in troubled pregnancies. Or somebody else says, you know what, I'm willing to do, I've got resources, so I'm going to provide the resources to help these people when they have the child, to support them in that way. Or another person says, you know what, I'm going to pray. Or another person says, you know what, we've got the ability to adopt and foster. We're going to love these kids that are unwanted in their birth families. And so those are all different ways that we can be involved and we need to give grace in one another's lives because so often we say, well, if you're not doing it my way, you're not doing it right. So we need to be dialoguing with one another. That lady was very right. It is complex. And we need to sit down with people and it's like, you're at a high level in a corporation. How does Christ impact that world? And to recognize there's some unique struggles that come with that. And how do I live out the kingdom culture of God's ethic in the world that I'm in right now? But that's got to be our goal, to say, you know what, I'm called to live as a holy nation, as a distinct culture. I'm to be countercultural in how I'm thinking about so many things. And it's a beautiful thing when we do that. And I think when the world sees us actually acting consistently with the ethic of Christ and his teaching, it's gonna be like, wow. But we're all people in process, right? <laughs> None of us have arrived. In a community of believers, you've got some people that have come to Christ two weeks ago and you've got some people that have been Christians for 53 years. 
right? It's going to be a challenge, but it's like, okay, that's where the older teach the younger, and the younger interact with the older, and there's this mingling generationally, and it's like we all work towards forming this holy nation that God has called us to be. And recognizing in all of that that the only reason that we're here is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That he's a Lord that calls extortioning tax collectors, zealots, harlots, prostitutes, guys that commit adultery and murder. And he says, you're welcome into my family if you will simply acknowledge those things own them and come to me for forgiveness. And then when you do, you're part of this holy nation. And who we are, folks, let's live into that reality. Increasingly to have our thinking shaped not by what I'm hearing in the media, but what I'm hearing from God's word and other believers that I trust and love. That's our call. And it's a noble call, but it's certainly a challenging call as well. And we need the grace of God. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table now, so I'm going to ask those servers to come up. And this is a time where we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. That regardless of where we had been and what we have done, His grace and forgiveness is available to us if we will trust in Him. And if you're here this morning, I'm going to urge you to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. To acknowledge your need for him. The Bible calls that repenting of your sin. To recognize that basically you've been running your life like you've wanted to run it. You want to be your own God. And I know because I've been there. But coming to Christ means not, hey, it's just a little club I'm joining. No, but this, you've got my life. And I'm turning from this orientation of being solely focused on myself to focusing on you, Jesus. That's where I want to be. And I recognize that I need your forgiveness. And I also recognize that you paid for my sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died on the cross for you and me. Taking all God's justified justice in Christ on that cross. And Jesus cried out, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. All that sin has been paid for. And we come to this table not because we're so choice, but simply because we're chosen by a God that loves scoundrels like you and like me. And when we have that attitude and when we come in humility, God says, I'm not going to turn you away. And some of you have had rough weeks. You've struggled with sins and you've fallen and you feel very broken. And I want to say God is saying, come to me, acknowledge that and return. Confess that. And when you do that, he welcomes you. Remember Peter? Jesus is about to go to the cross and Peter's like, Jesus, I love you more than any of these other guys. And Jesus is like, Peter, actually tonight before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And two of those times he denies him to a servant girl. It's not like a Roman soldier with a sword, you know, is holding it over Peter's head and saying, deny Christ or die. It's like, hey, don't you know Jesus? And then the last denial, he calls on down curses on himself. And before any of this happens, what does Jesus say to Peter? Peter says, Satan has desired to sift you all. 
But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Not that you're not going to fail, because Peter fell flat on his face, but that his faith wouldn't fail. And when you return, strengthen your brothers and sisters. How? By letting them know, you know what? God loves failures. (laughs) And when Jesus reinstated Peter, he asked him three times, do you love me more than these? And I think he's looking at the other disciples and say, hey, Peter, you're all about how much you loved me more than anybody else, and then you deny me three times. I'm giving you three times to say you love me. And Peter says, yes, you know I love you. Maybe not more than these anymore, but I love you. So when we come to Christ, he's for us. He's not against us. So if you're struggling and you're staying away because there's something going on in your life, I just urge you to confess that right now.